I'm grateful to the law school and uh, the student organizations for uh, having me here. Um, I took antitrust here a long time ago, and it helped prepare me for uh, what turned into a very long and satisfying and really fun career in antitrust. And I'm honored and excited to be talking to you about um, practicing antitrust in the age of technology. My challenge for the day is to convince you that being an antitrust lawyer is cool. Um, now, if that sounds like convincing you that being in the band in high school, in other words, uh, is cool, is in, in other words, impossible, um, I, uh, I want you to keep an open mind and hear me out. And I, I know what I'm talking about. That's me as a 14-year-old in uh, high school. I got so much cooler by the time I was a senior, I can't even tell you. Uh, but as Tom said, if you follow the news, uh, you um, will have noticed a whole lot of stories about antitrust, and in particular applying antitrust to our largest tech platform companies, especially Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. Because of these companies' size and their reach and concerns about the growth of their economic and political power, uh, there are antitrust theorists and some even presidential candidates who are urging changes to the antitrust laws and intensified antitrust enforcement against the platforms and even breakups. This animosity towards tech platforms has even spawned this new word, techlash, which last year um, was a finalist for the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year. Um, the, the winner word was toxic, and the uh, runner-up was gaslighting. So good times, huh? Um, the platform's uh, response to antitrust critiques, and, and by the way, I should uh, note that I have represented several of the companies um, in these matters, is uh, they succeed because they're efficient and innovative, and they offer extremely value valuable services to customers, some at zero or very low prices. Um, and they've succeeded not because they've done anything wrong, but uh, or to harm competition, and they shouldn't be punished for being successful. This debate has been one dimension of an extremely energetic and, uh, and fun reexamination of the purposes, one might even say the soul of antitrust uh, that is going on right now. All of these developments make this an especially opportune time to explore antitrust law, and I do feel very lucky that I'll be here at the beginning of November at the law school to teach a short course on antitrust in the digital economy, um, and that, that was advertising content. Um, so I will start by talking about what antitrust is and what I think is special and cool about practicing in the area, and then I'll move on to an overview of what's happening now in the antitrust and tech world, which sort of reverse order of what uh, Professor Nakbar mentioned. Um, and I'll offer a few thoughts about the future. I'm shooting for the talk to last about 35 minutes, and, um, and then we'll have time for questions at the end. If any of you have eaten one of those uh, marshmallow bars in your lunch bag and you need to run around the law school, uh, to, uh, I, I will understand. Uh, to quickly start with, what is antitrust? Um, can I ask, how, how many of you are taking or have taken antitrust here? So, okay, well, so for those of you who haven't, um, antitrust is a, is a weird and uniquely American word for the rules we have 
for how individuals and businesses can uh, compete with each other to make money. Um, the, the rest of the world calls these, call these laws competition laws, um, and that makes a lot more sense. But when Congress adopted them over 100 years ago, that's what it decided to call them. Here's the operative uh, language of uh, the US antitrust statutes. Um, the Sherman Act of 1890 and the Clayton Act and FTC Act of 1914. Congress called them antitrust laws because they were passed in reaction to the formation of trusts or groups of companies that got together to raise or stabilize prices in a variety of industries. So you had the, the sugar trust, the copper trust, the iron trust, and most famously, the, the standard oil trust. And these trusts were run by robber barons who controlled uh, a lot of resources, got very rich, and became very powerful politically. Concerns about their wealth and power inspired Teddy Roosevelt and other so-called trust busters to build political campaigns against them near the turn of the century. And similar today, antitrust became a topic of widespread public debate and a hot-button issue that featured in presidential campaigns. Now, as you saw from that spare statutory language that I showed you a, a minute ago, what the antitrust laws actually prohibited was not spelled out in very much detail. And the statutory language hasn't changed since those laws were adopted. Which brings me to the first thing that I think is really cool about antitrust. It's a living body of law. Congress left it to lawyers and judges and enforcers, with some help from economists, to fight about and define the content of these laws. Um, that's one reason why we can have a vigorous debate now over what the laws actually mean in the context of big tech over a century after their adoption. And when you're practicing antitrust law, what this means for you is that it's not at all unusual for you to encounter gray areas of law that call for you to revisit the old cases or think deeply about the fundamental policies and purposes that underlie the doctrine. And that is really fun work to do. And it's not something that you find in other types of practice. The second thing is that antitrust is important, strategically important, both to clients and business and also to the broader functioning of the economy. For you, the antitrust lawyer, that has several positive implications. First of all, every antitrust matter that you work on, whether you're in private practice or you're in uh, an enforcement agency, has to be understood in the context of how the particular industry or business works. That is, what the business strategy was that led to the merger or corporate conduct under investigation. Otherwise, you can't properly evaluate the competitive effects associated with it. And because of this close coordination between the legal issues and a company's business strategy, and typically the high financial stakes in these matters, they ma the matters usually get a lot of high-level attention from executives inside the company and from senior people in the lead legal department. And uh, that's good. I mean, you can't say that about every kind of legal problem that, the, that companies face. And I will say that it's uh, interesting, if not always fun, to spend time with CEOs. Um, in addition, antitrust cases also provide you amazing opportunities to get paid, to be curious, and learn about interesting things. 
And I want to hover on that for a second. This is a super good thing about being a lawyer generally. Um, and I think people sometimes don't appreciate that enough. Getting paid to learn things is awesome. Um, and please do count your blessings that you're about to enter into a profession where that is true. And in antitrust, if you're like me, and you enjoy learning about new industries and products and business strategies and the economic implications of those things, this is a fantastic practice area, really an opportunity to immerse yourself in issues that are deeply complex and important and stimulating. As far as the broader social and economic importance of the work in capitalist economies, the rules of competition, how they get interpreted and applied have enormous consequ uh, consequences for the allocation of resources, for people's jobs, uh, for uh, prices, uh, innovation, all kinds of things that are really, really vital. I'll touch more on those things when we talk more about big tech, but suffice it to say that antitrust policy is really important. Reason number three is that in antitrust, there happens to be a very, very healthy, supportive, and close-knit professional community around this uh, practice area. Uh, years ago, I was the chair of the ABA antitrust section, which is the largest professional organization in the area, and 9,000 people around the world belong to it, in spite of the fact that it's the American Bar Association. Um, it's very international. And People in government and in the private sector uh, work together, uh, volunteer endless hours, do all kinds of things on task forces and conferences, uh, knowledge sharing, to make the antitrust system work better, uh, not just here but across the world. And that kind of mindset, I think, makes um, it a rewarding community to belong to. And also, you're more likely to find people who are better mentors in that kind of ecosystem and mentors are important. Which brings me uh, to, uh, the, the reference to antitrust brings me to something else about it that I really like, and that is it's international in scope. Competition laws have been one of our most successful exports. Um, we in Canada were the first to adopt them in the late 19th century, and uh, now over 120 countries have uh, antitrust laws. It's actually, I think, this is just merger enforcement uh, regime, but I think it may be up to 140. And many of those countries are enforcing their laws aggressively, and some of them are enforcing them more aggressively than the United States has been of late. This international dimension of practice um, adds to the complexity of practicing antitrust because businesses are increasingly global and uh, therefore obligated to comply with antitrust regimes around the world. But it also makes practicing in the area uh, more interesting. It's a richer experience because there are cultural and political differences that you need to take account of, as well as legal ones, in order to do your job. And to me, anyway, that's fun. Okay, so I hope I've begun to get traction uh, on the idea that antitrust is uh, somewhat cool. Why is it especially cool right now. Well, as I mentioned before, there's a battle going on for the soul of antitrust. And let me expand on that a little bit more, as it is kind of important context for the discussion about antitrust and, and tech firms. 
excluding cases against price-fixing conspiracies, the, the level of U.S. antitrust enforcement has generally been declining for the last 40 years. Let me show you a couple charts. Uh, these are, this is just DOJ, so there's another U.S. agency, the FTC, and also state uh, enforcers. But DOJ publishes its data, and this marks the level of overall antitrust investigations initiated by the DOJ since 1970. Uh, and you don't need to be an economist to see the, the trend there. Um, this one breaks it down. And here, um, the red line is the one that's been uh, highest. It's called restraint of trade, and it's probably reflecting price-fixing conspiracies and criminal antitrust enforcement which has always been pretty uh, vigorous. The line to pay attention to is uh, monopoly. You see this yellow line, that's firms that are acting on their own to hurt competition. And the number of DOJ actions and investigations in that area have been very, very small. Why? This decline is often attributed to the influence of the Chicago School and, and Robert Bork. Um, under the Chicago School of Economic Theory, the, uh, their, their way of thinking was that it was wrong to invoke antitrust laws against firms just because they're big. Uh, they argued that firms attain size and scale uh, solely from uh, being efficient and innovative and industrious sometimes, and that sometimes these economies of scale and scope are the things that um, direct the market to award uh, success to the biggest firms. So punishing their legitimate success to help smaller, less efficient rivals is the opposite of what the antitrust laws ought to do. Instead, they promoted the idea that uh, antitrust violations should be reserved for situations where it could be shown that there was uh, anti-competitive conduct or mergers that could harm consumers by causing lower prices, uh, reduction of innovation, or lower quality. As many of you know, this, is, this became known as the consumer welfare standard, and under this view, the law's pro proper focus is on protecting competition and not, con not competitors. So unless there's harm to consumer welfare, we should let the market sort out the winners and losers and keep antitrust intervention to a minimum. So starting in the 1970s and 80s, this view uh, took increasingly firm hold of US uh, antitrust enforcement and jurisprudence, and as noted, a lot of people say that's the reason for this decline in enforcement over time. Uh, during that same period, we've also seen a significant increase in corporate concentration. So here's a graph showing market concentration, a measure of market concentration, uh, which is up to a three-decade high. There are, from their height, there are less than half or about half of the number of public companies listed on the stock exchange as there were uh, a few years ago. And there's a correlation between increases in uh, concentration and uh, margins. Uh, at least Goldman Sachs thinks so and tells its customers so. This graph shows the margins going up as concentration in the industries increase. So, some have sounded the alarm about this and called for intensified antitrust enforcement by the US. You see lots of news stories about this from uh, well-known people. Even the Wall Street Journal is publishing pieces about this, uh, calling for more 
more scrutiny. So uh, the tech firms have grown extremely rapidly, and they've grown to be extremely large. And they've emerged, as you might expect, as uh, high-profile targets for antitrust scrutiny. And that's especially true of what's known as colloquially as GAFA, uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. Um, there are a bunch of uh, reported investigations going on at the state level, at the federal level, um, in Congress, and internationally. Uh, and there's a lot of chatter in the political system about doing something about uh, big tech. And that includes even presidential candidates uh, who obviously made the judgment that this is an issue of salience with uh, voters. Elizabeth Warren has been the um, most uh, vocal, uh, comparing herself here to Teddy Roosevelt, um, and promoting the hashtag break up big tech, um, which probably doesn't capture every possible nuance in the uh, analysis. Um, but uh, unlike some issues, or many or most issues now, there is uh, more bipartisan support for uh, this antagonism towards big tech than in other areas. Here we have the incredible example of Ted Cruz retweeting Elizabeth Warren um, when she complained about being uh, uh, shut down on, on Facebook. So what are all the issues that are, that are prompting this? Um, there are some serious ones. Um, the, the, first of all, the, the rapid rise in the size and scope and perceived political power of the tech platforms. There are data privacy issues, both associated with breaches and people not knowing what's happening uh, to their, their data, misuse, intentional misuse of their data by uh, some bad actors. Concerns about disruption to incumbent players or industries. We've seen newspapers get hit hard, um, the journalism industry, brick and mortar stores, uh, all business models that have come under a lot of pressure from the online world. Um, and probably most importantly, the increasing social and political divisions in our country and elsewhere, um, some of which are attributed to things like fake news and other corrosive online content. So those are some of the phenomena, I think, that have added a lot of energy to this uh, debate. And we'll talk a little bit more about them and how they relate to antitrust or don't. But there is also a companion economic movement that criticizes the traditional focus on consumer welfare. And its origins are attributed in significant part to a very unlikely source, a student law review note. Um, law review notes are not generally known to have a wide readership. I've said that as nicely as I possibly can. Um, but this one uh, was different. Uh, this was January of 2017, uh, and it was written by a Yale Law student uh, called Lena Khan. It's been, uh, it's on the, the web and it's been hit hundreds of thousands of times, um, and it's had a lot of influence. It was expressing an, a, a, an antitrust theory against Amazon, um, and it's, uh, the, the interest it attracted in the press has brought its author, who's um, very young, 
a, a lot of popular press attention and celebrity. Um, here she is in the New York Times Magazine. There she is in The Atlantic. Um, and she's called this, and, and, and the other people associated with her movement have called this the new Brandeis movement um, of antitrust. Um, Brandeis was a Supreme Court justice who was a progressive firebrand and very skeptical of big companies and their influence on our society and democracy. So what does the new Brandeis movement have to say about the way antitrust should be as opposed to what it is now? Well, it's a, a call to a supposed return to populist roots of antitrust law. The claim is that antitrust law was conceived as a way to control um, the size and political influence of big companies, uh, that the focus since then of, uh, on consumer welfare and price theory is misplaced and much too narrow, and that the antitrust law ought to take more account of conduct and mergers that put too much stress on competitors and suppliers, even if that stress ends up producing lower prices in the short run uh, and other benefits for consumers. They argue that a particular area of concern is with respect to online platforms. There are a number of concerns. Vertical concerns would be something like um, Amazon competing with uh, uh, manufacturers who uh, list products on its or offer for sale products on Amazon's site. So, if you go and shop for Duracell batteries on Amazon, you'll be, you'll be exposed to Amazon basic alkaline batteries, which happen to be priced a little bit less than Duracell batteries. There are concerns that that's foreclosing market opportunities for uh, these entities that rely on Amazon for distribution services and taking unfair advantage. The platform winner-take-all issue requires a little bit of explanation. Uh, platforms, which economists call multi-sided markets, um, are businesses that operate by bringing together groups that uh, want to interact with each other on the platform. So we all know how this works. In the case of Google and Facebook, it's bringing together users and advertisers. Uh, for Amazon and eBay, it's bringing together buyers and sellers. For Uber and Lyft, it's uh, riders and drivers, um, et cetera. And all of those are multi examples of multi-sided platforms. Multi-sided platforms uh, can have a natural tendency toward size because of something uh, economists call network effects. Um, the platform becomes more valuable the more people who are on it. Uh, so users are attracted to eBay because uh, they, uh, there are a lot of sellers there, and the sellers are attracted there because there's a lot of buyers there. So in network industries, the competition can sometimes have a winner-take-all or winner-take-most characteristic. The progressive movement is concerned, the progressive antitrust movement, is concerned that these network effects, plus already having uh, the, the platforms in possession of large data sets, may protect the platforms from new sources of competition, new entry. Uh, they also argue that platforms uh, can tell which entrants are going to uh, evolve and grow and ultimately become threats. And so they buy them and stop that from happening. So not uh, everybody is in love with this uh, new set of theories. 
it's, uh, uh, they've been derided as hipster antitrust by some of their critics, um, saying that it's a superficial or faddish type of theory. However, I think we are moving beyond labels now to consider some interesting substantive questions and responses to the new Brandeis movement. Um, and here are some of those questions that are, that are on the table. So one is just a simple question of causation. Was it the way we enforced our antitrust laws that made, this, made these bad things happen? Um, is the growth in uh, industry disruption or socially divisive content due to uh, platform monopolies as the uh, new Brandeisians say, or something else like the internet. Um, so uh, that's not really an antitrust thing, that's a technological evolution thing. Um, one, if you think about sources of bad, conduct, bad content on the internet, everybody talks about breaking up um, you know, Facebook or Google. They don't talk about breaking up Twitter because Twitter is small. And so the bad content on Twitter really doesn't have anything to do whether it's big or little. Um, would a related question is, well, okay, whatever caused it, would changing the antitrust laws or enforcing them differently uh, fix things? Uh, I mentioned, I uh, went through the, that business about the, the network effects. People are calling for a breakup of big tech, but if there is a uh, market dynamic that produces one winner in a particular type of market because of um, the platform desirability and everybody wants to be on the same platform, then breaking up Facebook into four companies uh, isn't going to achieve anything because you're just going to—they're just going to coalesce again, and one, there's going to be one winner. There's another question when you think about things like data privacy. People, uh, at least in the United States, don't seem to want data privacy. People don't care that much about data privacy. They, they exhibit a preference that uh, d doesn't really value it. So if you had more competition, would that automatically produce more uh, privacy? And privacy is expensive, and so it's not intuitively clear that smaller firms are going to be better able to provide um, privacy, especially if they can't subsidize themselves with, uh, with advertising that's personalized according to data. Um, is perhaps non-antitrust regulation a better way to tackle some of these issues? You know, pr privacy rules, uh, uh, campaign finance reform, um, transparency requirements, things like that, that more directly attract, attack the, the phenomena that have got people so excited. Are there potential unintended uh, consequences? Well, I guess embedded in all this is should we abandon the, the consumer welfare standard? And if we do, well, what are the, the potential anti, uh, unintended consequences? It's to, to those of us who have been around this for a while, it's, it rings funny in our ears to think that antitrust laws should be invoked to protect less efficient competitors when that means that, at least in the short run, consumers are not going to you know, are going to suffer. They're going to pay higher prices, get lower quality. But it's not just consumers who are, you know, might suffer in the unintended consequences department. Small and medium-sized businesses rely on Amazon um, to carry their product and distribute and fulfill orders. Uh, small and medium-sized businesses are uh, on Facebook and Google and get the benefit of targeted ads for the customers they want. And that's a that's something that if you made that all more expensive or less available, 
would have significant impact. And what if antitrust enforcement was used to respond to perceived concentrations of political power? Um, should the DOJ evaluate proposed mergers based on how they might affect political power? That's, when you say that, that sounds a little scary. Um, if they did do that, what standards would they use and how would they be consistent across administrations? Um, and then last, how complicated is this to figure out? Well, um, the economics are hard, uh, for one thing. Um, trying to figure out uh, which small company would have turned into a big uh, competitor to one of the platform companies in its nascent state is a, is a hard thing uh, to do. Um, and, um, a, and, and trying to figure out whether they would have turned into what they l turned into after being invested in by the platforms is a hard thing to do. When Instagram was acquired by Facebook, it had 13 employees and no revenue. Um, so that's the reason that it didn't send up uh, red flags, or one of them. So um, what's going to happen? Uh, I, well, oh, this is a good one. Sorry. Um, it, it's factually com complicated as well as legally complicated. So this, there's a um, consulting firm called Luma that uh, years ago created the slide of all the ad tech in various sleeves. This is the display advertising, um, ad tech uh, ecosystem. There's one for mobile, there's one for search, a variety of them. And it's, people show this slide as a way to show you how mind-boggling uh, the, the, uh, the ecosystem is. Um, well, there's, there's more than one consulting firm um, in the world, and evidently how they compete is to try to do things one more step ahead. So here's Here's a slide that by another consulting firm, uh, Martech, that uh, puts all of that information on one slide. So this, this is available in wallet size if you want to have it with you um, to refer to. So it's complicated. Um, so what are, the, what are the things that are in the way of something being done about this? Um, well, the government tends to move pretty slowly, and especially when it's grappling with things that are as complicated as this. Um, and as you are learning, those of you in antitrust class, the, the, or will learn, the, the antitrust jurisprudence in the United States has evolved. And what's baked in the pie right now is pretty defendant-friendly. Uh, so the way this is, uh, that's going to happen faster is that we're, we would need new legislation. And at least of late, Congress hasn't been very good at, at passing new laws. Um, what, what might happen in the future is, uh, is already happening, and that is a serious conversation about the goals of antitrust and a review of what that means for um, big tech and tech platforms. And people are increasingly focused on, on regulation um, that's a little bit more targeted. Uh, and to me, that seems more likely to happen than a wholesale breakups or a, a fundamental overhaul of antitrust law. But one thing is for sure. Um, Amy Klobuchar may be polling only at uh, 3%, but in my view, at least one of her campaign goals is, uh, is clearly achievable. <laughs> um, 
So I think antitrust is already cool again, um, and uh, I'll just come out and say it. I think it's one of the coolest things that you can spend your time studying in law school, and it's worth a, a, a deep investigation in terms of a, a practice area. So um, I, I hope you do that. I'm done, but I'm happy to take uh, questions.